Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster, a nutritional therapist in Harley Street, London. I'm really interested in finding solutions to health problems that are in line with a person's goals. So some patients come to see me, actually I call them clients, I don't really like patients, it seems so... I like the word client. Do do you? I'm so glad you said that because I, I, I find it sort of disempowering. Patience is a little stigmatizing because it implies that there's something wrong with you. Part of what we try to do as providers is to help people realize that, you know, we are all vulnerable at times and we all can become ill at times and it's not, you're not, there's something wrong with you as a person because you're a patient. You mm-hmm. just have something that you have a problem you need to solve and that's why we want you to come to us. Yeah. Right? Well, I like clients because I want you to feel like I'm at your service. Right. Rather than I'm telling you what to do sort of right. thing. Right. Um, sorry, sorry, and, and here we have <laughs> Dr. Dr. David Rabin on, on the show. So I thought we might as well introduce you uh, since we're since the the second voice has come into the uh, podcast. But a lot of clients come to see me because I have ulcerative colitis and I chose not to treat my condition with Western medication, and I was looking for different alternatives. And I believe that we have a plethora of options available to us, Western. Uh, Indians uh, talking therapies whatever whatever it is there's so many different ways to, to help ourselves why restrict ourselves to only one so for me it didn't I didn't think it was intuitive to have western medication for the rest of my life I wanted to find a different way so nutrition healthy lifestyle has significantly helped me and that's why you're on the show because you have been researching and working in the field of treatment resistant mental health illness and I'm going to read a bit of your bio here. Uh, You are the chief innovation officer and co-founder and co-inventor of Apollo Neuroscience and you're a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist and the Apollo is the first wearable system to improve focus, sleep and access meditative states by delivering gentle layered vibrations to the skin. And I'm wearing one now, and I can say it's rather pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) He has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than 10 years and specifically focused his research on the clinical translation of non-invasive therapies that improve mood, focus, sleep quality, and in treatment-resistant illnesses. So thank you very much for coming on to the show. Sorry for the long introduction there. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Tell us why you're here, what you're doing, and, and what you're most interested in. So, uh, so I'm in, in London, actually, for a very relevant reason. I was invited here uh, following the Health Optimization Summit, okay. uh, which was hosted by Tim Gray just three or four weeks ago. That's and, right. So, so some context. We and met, that's where we met. We met at the Health Optimization Summit, mm-hmm. which was organized by Tim Gray, mm-hmm. and that was an extraordinary event. Fantastic. I mean... And it was the first, first one. The amazing. first one. And I cannot wait for the next year. And you, you did a talk. What was the name of your talk? So my talk was something along the lines of uh, accelerating adaptation, and it was about um, how we can use not non or minimally invasive treatments to uh, improve our resilience, and really looking at the interface or the convergence between wearable technology and uh, psychedelic medicine, and what we can learn from all of those different areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so my talk actually went very well uh, at that conference, mm-hmm. and very well. Thank you. Um, and I was invited back to uh, speak this week uh, for a press conference with Healthista and uh, the Pullman Group, which are two very health and wellness-focused organizations that 
are doing some really great work to really focus on you know day-to-day -day wellness strategies for improving your life and a mission of helping people stay healthy while they travel which is something that has been a challenge for me in particular because we've been traveling a lot uh, and but for, I think for all of us especially those of us who work really hard uh, sometimes it's very difficult particularly when we travel to maintain our rhythm. I, I couldn't agree more in fact it is one of the reasons why I'm resistant to travel because it throws me off so much that I'd rather not travel at all and right. just stay here with my, my little routine right. and my hermit sort of lifestyle. <laughs> um, before we go into the questions, I'm actually really interested in your clients and what they felt and the anxiety that they felt, the, the stress that they felt and the empathy that you had for them. And it made you think, I need to do something for these people. I need to figure out a different way. Yeah, so similar to, to what you said during your intro, I thought you said it very well, which is that you know, there's not always one treatment or one discipline of treatments that works for everyone. Um, I think this easiest way to sum it up that I've found is that you know, Western medicine is really great for treating acute emergent illnesses. Yes, so perfect. Where you're about to die or have terrible consequences from an illness of so things like infection that require antibiotics or... Um, anything that's an injury or anything requiring acute surgery to save your life, Western medicine is fantastic mm -hmm. and has changed the world for all of us in a very positive way. And antibiotics. And, right, and, and, and antibiotics being a huge Amazing. part of that, vaccines being a huge part of that, right? Mm -hmm. However, it's actually been found over the last hundred years or so to be quite awful at treating chronic illness, particularly chronic inflammatory illness, uh, because the Western discipline uh, treats chronic illness the same way that it looks at acute illness. It says if you have symptoms times time, we're just going to give you the same medicine or, or a concoction or cocktail of medicines. You take one or multiple medicines every day for the rest of your life to manage your symptoms. But it's in some ways what happens is, particularly in mental illness, is that it, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. The leg is still broken. The emotional wound is still present. And the medicine is numbing or distracting to source of the problem. It doesn't actually tackle the source of the problem. And so that's kind of where Eastern medicine practices come in, which are anything from deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, to nutritional management, to sleep and circadian rhythm management, and basically maintenance of our mental and emotional health and inflammatory metabolic systems. And these are practices that have been around for thousands of years, one of which is plant medicine, which includes psychedelic medicines like psilocybin mushrooms, which are the oldest, probably the oldest known medicine in all of humanity. Mm -hmm. thought to be over 10,000 years old, used traditionally by tribal culture, uh, often to treat trauma and emotional unrest and things of this nature. That has evolved into other plant medicines that have been used for ceremonial healing practices for many thousands of years, like uh, cacti containing mescaline, and then everyone is probably now familiar with things like ayahuasca, um, which is a traditional South American uh, plant um, cocktail of two plants, uh, and then things like iboga, which is the African complement to that. These practices of nutritional management, mental and emotional health management, even spiritual, the idea of spiritual health management is something we don't really talk about in Western medicine, um, but these practices taken all together provide a, a much more complete view of health, especially when you combine Eastern uh, preventative and, and health maintenance practices to manage inflammation, manage metabolism with Western medicine. We, we see a much more complete picture of, of how to manage health. We can use both of these strategies together, not just one or the other, but really combining everything we know about both disciplines to really enhance the way that we provide care and how 
we can take the best of both to really give people much better lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a huge part of my practice. As a psychiatrist, clinically, I focus mostly on treatment-resistant PTSD, depression, anxiety, and which is oftentimes complicated by substance use disorders uh, because people aren't getting the relief that they want from the medicines they're prescribed, so they self-medicate. So one of the things that, that Eastern medicine practice, practices teach us that Western medicine is now starting to, again, come full circle on is that the center of healing it comes from within the self. So we have to be, and we have to empower our patients to heal themselves, and we have to focus on healing ourselves. Um, and if you look at the ancient origins of this, in Sanskrit, the word svatya, which is the word for health, comes from the root of self. It means to realize the self. So, you know, one of the current best therapies for treating addiction is not a medicine, it's motivational interviewing, right? It's these brief interventions where we sit for 15, 10 to 20 minutes and we chat and what happens is those brief interventions motivate you to make change in your own life. And all of my clients, I'm happy to say, I am not prescribing any medicine to at all as a psychiatrist, which is really unique. And they are almost all in sustained remission. Amazing. And it's because of their work, you know, and it's so much more gratifying when you can realize that the benefits and the, and the recovery that you have in your own life comes from you. As doctors, you know, when we take a Hippocratic Oath, and one of the most Absolutely. important parts of the Hippocratic Oath is, is do no harm. Right. Yeah. And when you provide as a clinician, a diagnosis to a patient and say, you have a chronic illness, right? So we're attaching their identity to a diagnosis, which persists over time. And now they start to make that association themselves or they see themselves as sick, as a sick identity. And so now the the client or the patient feels that if they don't take the medicine that we've prescribed them every day, that they cannot heal. Health starts within the self. We need to focus on motivating our clients to understand how to heal themselves, how to use the tools in their toolbox and use our resources to heal rather than seeking from outside. I came from a background of thinking I have the strength within me to overcome anything that my health is facing. But I have to say, when you look into the eyes of someone who has tried and tried and failed, having that, I'm going to rely on something external to get me out of this and then I can take it from there, mm-hmm. that, that, that's actually, I, I could see the relevance of that. Well, that's a lot of the role that we play. Mm-hmm. in our clients' lives, right? Yeah. We are we are still outside of our, of our clients' lives. We are not our clients, mm-hmm. but we are able to sit with our clients and to help foster hope and help foster a... A path uh, out. A, a, a foundation mm-hmm. for growth so that they can find their own path. And ultimately, I think our goal is, is, is sort of like a modern shaman in some ways, which is to help guide people back onto that path so that they can walk it themselves. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, let's talk about psilocybin because sure. uh, you know you and I could talk all day, but, but uh, the audience is just keen to know about the medicinal properties of psilocybin. And I think we should start with that point on recreational versus medicinal because it's not the substance, it's, it's why you're taking it. Sure, yeah. You know, so psilocybin is really interesting. We understand that many different kinds of mushrooms are therapeutic, right? Look and go to your average health food store, you will see tons and tons of mushroom supplements for sale. And it's based on very strong evidence that these mushrooms uh, are very potent at increasing the functioning of the immune system. Psilocybin in particular is interesting because it grows naturally and requires, psilocybin mushrooms require no processing. Psilocybin in particular is an extremely powerful substance, medicine, to help us understand our own capacity for healing. We're talking about human optimization. What's really interesting, particularly relevant to where we are right now in London, 
and where I'm going later today is to meet with Dr. Robin Carr Harris and his team, and they have done some of the founda most foundational work recently about how psilocybin affects the brain. Amazing. And it's incredible. So, and they've looked at, you know, tons of brain scans and done an enormous amount of incredible work uh, that came, you know, out from right down the road, just five miles away. And they've shown that there is a network in the brain that we call the default mode network. The default mode network is very important because it actually is consistent with how we see ego. So ego being this, this uh, concept of the part of ourselves that's very rooted in, in maintaining identity, maintaining survival, and it's associated with the way that we think about the world regularly. What happens is as you go through your life and you do things the same way every time and you build these routines, what you do is you're strengthening the connections between your default mode network. The default mode is really what, it's, what it sounds like. It's the default way that our brain is taught to experience the world. What Robin Card Harris showed and his group, and, and now it's been confirmed by others as well, with lots of different psychedelic medicines, is that when you take psilocybin in particular, it disrupts the default mode network and, and allows the brain to, the different parts of the brain, to still be active, in a lot of ways more active and more interactive, talking to each other in ways they weren't before, uh -huh. and freely. You think about the world and you live your life in the same routine every day, and you strengthen these connections. It's like skiing down a run, the same exact run every time, the same tracks every time you're going down the mountain. And then all of a sudden, you get to the top of the mountain one day, and eight feet of powder just drops in front of you and covers a whole mountain with snow, and there's no tracks anymore. There's no previous recorded way to follow. There's no routine. And you have the freedom now, all of a sudden, to choose any direction you go in, at any speed and make any connections you want that that you can make now freely. And so that's that's really what psilocybin is doing to the default mode network. It disrupts the default mode network. What's interesting is it's a dose-dependent relationship. So the more psilocybin you take, the more the default mode network dissolves through that we see in the fMRI scans. And the more your default mode network resolve, or dissolves, the less egoic you become. So, Gosh. so the more, you, the less you feel... The less you. The, not less you. <laughs> They're just the less... The less attachment to what you're perception of you is. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we all have this concept of how we see ourselves, which is sometimes different from the way that we present ourselves to the outside world. Right? We have, oh, for sure. There's a... a, a oh, so, completely. Right. And that causes a lot of problems. It, it does, yes. Because um, yeah. sometimes yeah. we might have, you know, several different social groups or different work groups that we are involved in, and then yeah. we have our home life. Uh -huh. And sometimes we feel that we are one version of ourselves in our home lives and another version of ourselves in all these different groups and sometimes a different version in each group. And so because of the social stigma of, you know, not being able to necessarily feel like you can be yourself in all these different settings, yeah. ultimately that divergence between the sense of self that you know yourself to be and the sense of self that you project out to the world yeah. creates dissonance in our, in our ego, dissonance in our identity. And so what these medicines do is they allow you to remove that filter for a brief mm -hmm. amount of time, to remove that lens that you might have been seeing the world through and seeing yourself through for, you know, sometimes years, decades, um, and then look at yourself through fresh, clean lenses mm -hmm. that do not have stigma and that do not have preconceived notions. And so this creates profound abilities for people to recognize healing abilities within ourselves that have always been there but we may just not have realized that we had that when. The last part of the question is the difference between recreational and medicinal use. 
And the major difference is, as you said, the set and the setting and the intention that you come into it with. If you do things in your life aimlessly without intention, then they, la they lose meaning, mm -hmm. right? And meaning is critical to how we build relationships, not just with ourselves, but with everything around us in the world. And if you do things rote, heuristically, without thinking about the intention behind why you're doing something, then life starts to seem a little less colorful and a little less meaningful. And that's the same with, with these psychedelic medicines, but the psychedelic medicines are extremely powerful. Uh, the, the tribal cultures refer to them as master plants. And so what happens is because they alter our sense of self, if you don't go into that experience in a safe and well-curated intentional way, you're probably not going to have a powerful healing experience. But if you do the same exact medicine in, in the presence or company of a couple therapists who are well-trained and you have done prep for that session, and then you do the integration work afterwards where you practice learning, taking what you've learned from that experience and then weaving it into the fabric of your life, then all of a sudden the things that you get out of that experience become things that you can take with you for the rest of your life. And then you get this transformative healing process. And we see that from the work with started here with Robin Carhart Harris in treatment resistant depression, where people who have had literally had depression for over 10 years, tried multiple therapies with full courses and never had significant and sufficient consistent symptom relief can take one dose of psilocybin in the curated intentional set and setting and with just one dose, not only did they say afterwards it's one of the most powerful experiences and meaningful experiences they've ever had in their lives, but they're symptom-free for six to 12 months out with one dose. Amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. It's extraordinary. And it's, and it's very difficult, I think, for us in Western medicine to, to reconcile that because it's a complete paradigm shift from the way that we have mm -hmm. traditionally treated these illnesses. But, when, but that's where the Eastern stuff comes back in, because when you look at the way that Eastern medicine has always taught how to treat emotional and mental unrest, it's always been about focusing healing in the self, which is what these medicines do. By the way, psilocybin and MDMA are in phase three, or um, are in FDA trials currently within the U.S. Um, they both have breakthrough status, which means that they have demonstrated such significant healing results in their early trials that they will be fast-tracked to the FDA if the results from the, phase, the new current trials are anything like previous trials, and, which is a huge step. MDMA is, is, is working in a similar way to psilocybin, although it's not as state-altering. It's more focused on safety and presentness and, and mindful, empathic experiences. And so what we see is that people who have had PTSD, treatment-resistant for an average 17 years, 52% after two months after this 12-week course, 52% are no longer meeting symptom criteria for PTSD. And so, there are people practicing this certain places around the world. It's just not, it, it's, you know, questionably legal, right? Policy hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. But it will, because once the FDA says that this is actually medicine and they give the seal of approval, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it's going to be start, start to pick up. But, it, but what's really amazing about the MDMA trial is that 52%, two months after this 12-week session, which is three doses of medicine, 52% are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. However, five years out, 67% are no longer meeting symptom criteria for PTSD. And so how is that possible, right? That's, that's even more paradigm shifting than the three doses causing consistent relief. Because by the Western medicine principle, if we were to stop treatment, we should be getting worse. But what's happening is people 
are learning so much from that 12-week experience, similar to the one dose of psilocybin, they're learning so much because of the intention to go in, the intention to understand how to heal themselves, and they come out with so much knowledge about that exact thing of how to use their own internal tool set to heal, that they can continue those practices after for years and years and years to the point where they're getting better and better on their own without more medicine, without more therapy. To see that kind of thing happening, it not only is amazing, it's the first thing and the closest thing to a cure we've ever had in mental illness. Mm -hmm. So it's really imperative that we, that we all get on board with this, understanding the evidence base, which is very, very significant. And basically, at this point, I would, I would venture to say undeniable, because if you actually go and read the papers that have been done, that have been published in world-renowned peer-reviewed medical journals, there's, you cannot deny these results that people are finding because they are constantly reproducible, mm -hmm. not only on the neuroimaging level, but also on the clinical level. So I think what's happened with CBD oil and CBD in general, so I believe that's legal now, mm -hmm. and cannabis is legal in certain states. Mm -hmm. In is 30, psilocybin states. Okay. Is 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 psilocybin legal anywhere? It is decriminalized in a few areas, but not legal. Okay. Decriminalized meaning that they will not prosecute you for having it. It's gonna be a long time before it is prescription in the way that our current medicines are prescri prescribed, where we send people home with it to use on their own. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the natural techniques, like the, the things that we always work with our, our clients on, again, meditation, deep breathing, nutrition regular exercise, all of these things, these are incredible natural practices that we should all be doing more on a regular basis, myself included. Um, yeah, me too. But they can take thousands of hours, thousands of hours to train and practice to become proficient at. Mm -hmm. And when we are already ill or we're already really stressed out, you know, or we're traveling all the time, uh, for what, you know, whatever it is that's driving your stress, it can become really difficult to shift your routine because stress directly inhibits mm -hmm. change. And so... Um, so what, what psychedelic medicines provide us with an opportunity for is to give somebody that feeling mm -hmm. for a very brief amount of time of what it's like to feel not ill. What is it like yeah. to feel healthy again or to feel hope, to feel belief, to feel that there is a way out? What happens is you have a little bit of a reset where you're able to see yourself clearly, see your, the world around us clearly, and see your path, see your opportunities for healing that are right in front of you, and understand that you have access to those things mm -hmm. to help them break that cycle of illness. And I have to say, for those who are listening who, who find the legality aspect disturbing, well, I actually find processed food a little bit disturbing, and that's perfectly legal. And alcohol is widely available, and that's... Um, that's legal uh, to a point. I just think you need to do what's right for you. I think you need to connect with your own body, connect with, with your own intuition and uh, take control of your own life and your own health and be open to change. Mm -hmm. We are the most adaptive organisms in the world. You know, that is Evolution. why we, evolutionarily, that's yeah. why we've reached where we have in the world. You know, no other animals have created what we're looking at right now at this window, you know, or this hotel, right? It's us. So if trauma is causing 17, 20, 30 years of deficit or, or negative symptoms from just one or several traumatic experiences, then why can't one really, really powerful spiritual, emotional, mental, or therapeutic experience reverse that process down to the level of the epigenetic code? However, what we know from all this work is that 
safety is a physiological process that has a certain pattern of uh, nervous system activity in the body where when we are feeling good and we're feeling balanced and we're feeling safe, amygdala activity comes down, right? And so, and we know that MDMA from the mouse studies actually does this. It actually does this. Mechanistically, we've shown that it boosts activity in the emotional cortex in the insula and inhibits activity in the amygdala. Um, I, I will say, so before we started the podcast, you put this, shall we call it a bracelet or an... Yeah, okay. just call it the Apollo. It works anywhere on the body. So tell me what's, what studies have been carried out on this, because I, I'm game to try things anyway, but so, some uh, some people would prefer some sort of evidence or of course. a trial. So, so what evidence has been acquired so far? So I've been working on this since 2014. Uh, the technology came out of the University of Pittsburgh for my work with again, originally with people with treatment-resistant mental illness because we just didn't have the tools that were side-effect-free to send people home with when they didn't want medicine or they weren't responding to medicine. So what we did is we went and when we you know, developed these frequencies originally from our understanding of the neuroscience of safety and touch, the neuroscience of how music affects the body, uh, and the neuroscience of meditation, mindfulness, biofeedback, deep breathing, all these things, to try to replicate these states for people on the go, we just experienced it with ourselves and with our lab mates, and we all felt really nice. But I we feel didn't really un- nice. Yeah, we didn't understand why. Uh, we didn't really know what we were doing yet, and we didn't necessarily even believe it ourselves. So we decided to run a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover study, and we showed that in this study, when we gave people these frequencies, these special layered Apollo frequencies, and we gave people placebo frequencies, what we saw with this task was only with Apollo frequencies, We boosted heart rate variability, which is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. High heart rate variability correlates with increased emotion control, increased energy recovery, increased uh, attention control, and we see decreased signs of sympathetic tone, like decreased sweat, decreased heart rate. The more that we boosted parasympathetic tone, the more your heart rate variability goes up, the more calm people said they felt, and the more their performance increased on the stressful task, up to 25%. The only things, by the way, that increase heart rate variability that much, that quickly, are people who are seasoned meditators, because deep breathing increases heart rate variability as well. When we see this boost in heart rate variability, we saw a direct relationship with performance outcomes. And then this didn't happen with the placebo frequencies, the no vibration emission, by the way, and nobody knew what oh. they were getting, right? So only these Apollo frequencies were inducing this change. Oh. And so that's how we knew that these were truly unique patterns that we were sending to the body that was creating a kind of resonance with the heart and the lungs and the vasculature and that kind of thing. And these people who symptoms are always worsened by stress are seeing dramatic results and they're actually self-tapering medicine, particularly things like opioid medicines and benzodiazepines, which Uh are incredibly habit-forming and very difficult to come off. And people are voluntarily discontinuing use because they are getting relief from this. And, they, and it gives them that locus of control that recenters it back in the cell. And, and that's it, so empowering. It is empowering. Process. And it's also non... It, there's no chemistry here. So the, there's no there's no medication. There's no, no medication. contraindication. If you don't want to ingest anything, this is something you just you put on the skin. Right. So it's, it, it's great for everyone. Um, we've had people from age 3 to 93 use it. Uh, people who are pregnant have used it. 
we haven't seen any adverse reactions, which well, is I, really incredible. It is incredible. I, I have to say, I, I asked you from before, what clinical evidence do you have? And that was a, a, a very thorough response. So I, I certainly hope it satisfies our more skeptical <laughs> le- listeners. Um, right, I'm very conscious of time. So I, I, I think we have to wrap it up there. Sure. And I should say, if people want to learn about more about Apollo, they you do. go to apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. Uh, and you can learn all about uh, the work that we're doing. We have a special pre-release right now for the listeners of your of your podcast, and they can uh, check it out at a very special, nice discount. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's a science section up there that they can review some of the work that I just spoke about. Let's call it a day at that, because you're going to be late for your next meeting, and I don't want to be responsible for that. So thank you so much for coming to the show. You've been extraordinary. I know they're going to absolutely love it, and they were so interested in hearing your wisdom. And I, I love what you've done. And thank you so much for contributing to us and the world. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, so thank you very much for coming on to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy.